From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. President Biden wants to build back better, but he'll need Democrats to unite around his plan to improve child care, expand health care access, and fight climate change. I'll ask Colorado Representative Ed Perlmutter about the road ahead and the wisdom of spending when inflation's rising. Then, sometimes the rescuers need rescuing. Backcountry first responders are on the scene after an avalanche or a fall. And while they're in tip-top physical shape, the job takes a toll on their mental health. Well, Colorado's testing out new ways to support them psychologically. Today, a longtime rescuer in Summit County talks about these new approaches, just as the pandemic sends more people into the backcountry who may need rescuing. And she came to Colorado for social work, but landed on a stage. Hi, I'm Kendall Smith, and I donated my car to CPR. It was fully packed and loaded, ready for our move to Basalt, and got as far as C-470, and the car started telling me it didn't want to go. And I thought, what better way to send it off than one last contribution to Colorado Public Radio? So I left it in Denver and got onto the website, filled out the form, and met them back in Denver a week later. It takes less than five minutes to get the donation process started at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. President Biden today signs the trillion-dollar infrastructure bill into law. But another package called Build Back Better isn't yet a reality. The $1.75 trillion in social programs will take center stage in Congress in coming weeks. Congressman Ed Perlmutter, who represents the northwest Denver suburbs, play something of an insider role. We're going to talk to him about that, as well as some politics closer to home and a program he champions for people who worked at nuclear plants during the Cold War. And Congressman, welcome back to Colorado Matters. Uh, Thanks, Ryan. It's great to be here. You'll be at the infrastructure bill signing this afternoon. The key to getting it passed was delaying action on that Build Back Better package until the Congressional Budget Office analyzes exactly what it will cost. Speaker Pelosi has said she hopes to get a vote on Build Back Better by Thanksgiving. This legislation tackles climate change, health care, child care, elder care. Do you support it? Yes, I do. And uh, I sit on the Rules Committee. You were talking about being an insider. and We've heard the bill several times now as we were trying to figure out the sequence of passing the infrastructure bill. And the infrastructure bill is investing in the hard assets of America, in the roads and bridges, the electrical grid, the broadband, the water systems, among other things. And so the Build Back Better is investing in people in their education, in childcare, in their housing, in their healthcare, and actually in science. So both of them really are investments in America, and they they fit together well. And what we had to do was just sort of get this sequence of, of the passage of these things in the proper order that everybody could feel comfortable. And we did. Well, when you say that everyone could feel comfortable, Democrats have not been united on the question of Build Back Better. Uh, There, of course, is uncertainty about the economy because of COVID. Inflation is rising for consumers. Is now the time to spend this kind of money? Well, I think that uh, Democrats have been united. It's on the size and a particular thing 
within uh, the Build Back Better bill. But I think that uh, we're all coming together. And between the two of them, and you add the American Rescue Plan uh, that occurred in the spring, uh, these are, are massive uh, pieces of legislation that will affect us for a dozen years or more into the future. And you raise inflation, and obviously we all got to be keeping an eye on that. But, you know, if you look back at the beginning of COVID, you couldn't buy toilet paper at any price. You couldn't get Purell. You couldn't get masks. And eventually the market catches up. But when a lot of people are doing the same thing at one time, you have disruptions in the economy. But these bills, the infrastructure bill, Build Back Better, are for the next five and 10 years. And so I think over time, we'll see the oscillating in the uh, economy kind of equalize. You know, I read an article in Forbes or something last week that said the next disruption is not going to be shortage of things, but a glut of things as all of these container ships finally get unloaded and all the products that we've been ordering and are on back order are available to us. So Hmm. these things that we're doing are really long-term investments that will be better for us in America, improve our roads and bridges, improve our health care, provide, you know, uh, child care and child tax credits to people so that they get refunds. Families with children get refunds. But these things are going to last for years and not only be better for us in America, but keep us competitive with the rest of the world. Are you painting too rosy a picture of the unified nature of Democrats on this? No, I don't think so. Um, you know, I uh, I have friends on the, the left, uh, very liberal in our caucus, very conservative in our caucus. And we all want to take advantage of this time where we can really build and rebuild America, whether it's the hard infrastructure or just people and their education and their child care and their health. Uh, you know, in Build Back Better, for instance, there is a lot of science uh, investments in, for instance, the National Renewable Energy Lab and all the Department of Energy labs up in NOAA and NIST. There's wildfire mitigation. There's climate Uh, change so that we have a sustainable future. And there are differences on specific little things, but overall there's agreement. And I, I, uh, you know, I'm an eternal optimist, but having listened to this bill, heard from both sides, uh, saw that we move forward with the infrastructure where we were kind of stuck. We passed the rule to allow this investment in people to move forward. And I feel pretty good about it. You mentioned uh, NREL, which is in Colorado, NIST as well, National Institutes of Standards, and uh, what is that? Technology, I believe, yes. Right, and, then, um, and, and These NOAA. federal labs, and, and, and NOAA, uh, which has its eyes on the skies. Uh, all right, well, do you think a vote can get done on Build Back Better by Thanksgiving, then, as the Speaker wishes, before we move on? Yes. You do? I think so. Uh, they, we know that there are um, some budget numbers that have come back for a big part of the bill. We're waiting for the rest of it over the course of the next few days. But really, step number one was getting this infrastructure bill passed. And I, I don't think you, we can understate or overstate the importance of this bill uh, to 
You know, for instance, in uh, Colorado, we're going to have dozens and dozens of bridges uh, repaired and rebuilt, uh, the likes of which we haven't seen since the uh, interstate program was first uh, conceived back in the late 50s and early 60s. You know, the, the electrical grid, because of wildfires, we've seen the electrical grid spark some of the wildfires or completely disintegrate because of the wildfires. And with extreme weather, we saw the entire grid in, in Texas go down. So there is electrical grid uh, resiliency in the infrastructure bill. And then water systems, even in Colorado, our water systems are getting old. And these are millions of jobs over the course of the next 10 years. I'd like to talk a bit about the midterm elections. Uh, the boundary lines of Colorado's congressional districts have just been redrawn, including your district, the 7th. Uh, first question, just to get it on the record, Ed Perlmutter, uh, do you plan to run for re-election? Well, we're working on uh, putting the campaign together. How's that? Uh, I'll take a yes or a no. Okay, how about uh, we're putting the campaign together? Okay. Why wouldn't you no, just say I, yes? I, honestly, uh, sure. I've been, I had to file a paper, you know, a year ago to say that I wanted to run again. So, uh, yeah, and the district itself is uh, about as beautiful district as there is in America. So well, you, uh, you have to say that now. I, I just want to point out that you won that district by 20 points last time, but the new seat leans only about seven points Democratic. Uh, you know, next year is expected to be tough for Democrats, and the Republican Congressional Super PAC has announced it's going to spend money against you. Are you preparing for a tighter race? Yes. The But you might recall, Warren, or Ryan, not okay. pardon me. It happens all the time. Uh, yeah, you might recall that uh, when the 7th was first put together um, back in 2010, that district was even Stephen, equal number of Democrats, unaffiliated, and Republicans. And over time, it became, you know, more blue, more Democratic. But it has never been all that easy, but we've worked very hard at it. And the last time the National Republicans targeted me, I won by 22 points. And so... You know, this is going to be a tougher district. It's a lot of new area, but primarily the voters are in the suburbs and the suburbs uh, of Broomfield, the suburbs of Jefferson County are, are probably 600, 620,000 of the 720,000 people. Then it extends way up into the mountains, That's which right. I think are most beautiful mountains, Mount Elbert, Mount Massive, the Collegiate Peaks, the Sangre de Cristos. I mean, it's real Colorado. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are checking in with a member of Colorado's congressional delegation. That's Democrat Ed Perlmutter, who represents Denver's northwest suburbs in Congress, speaking to us from Washington, D.C. Later today, he'll be at the infrastructure bill signing, and he's just confirmed for us that he's running for re-election. I want to talk to you now about this program that helps former workers at nuclear facilities, Congressman. That includes... Uh, Rocky Flats, for instance, in your district, about a half hour's drive northwest of Denver. That plant manufactured plutonium triggers for bombs until 1989. Cleaning up the radioactive contamination took 15 years. 
Many of the folks who worked at those facilities have gotten sick from their exposure. And there's a federal program that provides them with medical and financial benefits. You have pushed hard over the years for improvements to that program. Uh, At this point, are you satisfied with how it's working? I'm more satisfied. It, it has, it's been very difficult for many of the people that worked at Rocky Flats and other uh, you know, facil- nuclear facilities across the country, uh, but it's gotten better over time, uh, still can be improved. It's, there, there's a program called, it's basically the Energy Employees Compensation Fund to recognize the different kinds of illnesses that uh, people get from having worked around plutonium, uranium, any radioactive materials. And, uh, you know, starting in the 90s, uh, we really began to see people get very sick, different kinds of cancers. And that's when the uh, compensation fund was first created. Right. Uh, but, it, but the numbers are kind of stacked against the workers. And we've tried to improve that over time. One of the people who benefits from the program is a gentleman by the name of Herman Flores. He's 57, lives in Thornton. He has lung damage that he says is traceable to his 23 years at Rocky Flats. And he told us he's certainly happy to have the program, but says the application process is so complicated, he worries that other workers aren't getting the help they need. Do you have a sense that there may be workers, many of them, eligible for benefits who haven't applied? You know, who isn't getting served? I think uh, many people who have uh, become ill have applied. But to Herman's point, the application process over the years has been difficult. And you had to fall within these exact parameters to be able to receive uh, the compensation uh, that you're due for having been a cold-era warrior. And we've tried through a number of different vehicles, particularly an ombudsman program, to assist people uh, with this process because you've got um, you know, different agencies involved, uh, the Department of Defense, the Department of Energy, the Department of Health and Human Services, the Department of Labor, and it had been a really kind of a difficult uh, bureaucratic maze to negotiate. Mm-hmm. And so we, we've added this ombudsman to help people, and it's improved. But it, he's right. It's still uh, difficult to get the compensation uh, that I think people deserve. Before we go, how about a status report on another bill that's perennial for you? The Safe Banking Act would make it possible for marijuana businesses to work with banks. They can't do that currently because pot is still illegal under federal law. Uh, This uh, act has passed the House repeatedly, but it just can't get through the Senate. Uh, Just briefly, any sense of its prospects now? Uh, I feel pretty good about it. Um, The... We've passed it twice now. Uh, Once, when the Republicans were in charge of the Senate, passed it with big bipartisan vote out of the House, and went to the Senate, and it got stuck under Senator Crapo, who was uh, chairing the banking committee over there. We passed it again uh, in March of this year. Now the Democrats are in charge, and Sherrod Brown is the chair. And the problem has been... Under the Republicans, they felt the bill was too big and too broad, and under the Democrats, too narrow and too limited. 
but I know there's a lot of support in the Senate, uh, just as there is in the House for the passage of the Safe Banking Act. And because it wasn't moving, uh, we added it as an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act in the House because there's a component of the bill that deals with cartels and deals with foreign money laundering mm. and germane to the bill. So now that's a bill that has to pass. We're going to ask that it stay on the bill as part of a conference between the Senate and the House. And so, yeah, I, I have uh, I'm optimistic that it'll it'll become law uh, either as part of that or something else. But we're going to get it. We're going to get it passed, right? Writing perhaps on the back of something else. Uh, that is Democrat Ed Perlmutter, who represents Denver's northwest suburbs in Congress, speaking to us from Washington. Back in a moment with more from our series on housing instability. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. What caused the East Troublesome Fire? More than a year later, we still don't know. When it comes to finding out the cause of major human-caused wildfires, Colorado does worse than any other Western state. You know, you kind of pull up, look at it. If it's not super obvious, then, you know, yeah, I looked at it. But there's fires where investigators I know, nobody ever showed up. I'm Ben Marcus. Read this CPR News investigative report about the cost of unsolved megafires at CPR.org. When the pandemic hit, Funding rolled in for emergency homeless shelters across Colorado. Hotels and stadiums turned into housing. In Greeley, one shelter took in dozens of people who are especially vulnerable to COVID-19. But the funds have run out, so that shelter is closing. Its residents face an expensive and unstable housing market. Here's CPR's Matt Bloom. Rosie Rutherford sits on a folding chair inside her sparsely furnished living room. In her hand is a piece of paper with names and numbers of nearby low-income apartments. She's on the hunt for a new place. We just got a, a list today of places that we qualify for. Rutherford suffers from lupus, anxiety, depression, and other health conditions that make it hard to work and affect her speaking voice. For most of this year, she's shared this room with a friend at the Bonnell Homeless Shelter in Greeley. It's a facility funded through pandemic stimulus dollars for people at high risk of severe illness from COVID-19. For Rutherford, it's been a stable home. As a disabled veteran, I've been homeless off and on for about 20 years. This place is one of the very nicest places I've ever been in as a homeless person, and I've been in a lot. Here, about 40 residents get their own one- or two-bedroom apartment. Everyone wears masks, there's 24-7 security, and even housing case managers on site. But it's making what Rutherford calls a bad move. It's closing. Why on earth would you want to shut down the only thing that's working? The reason Bonnell is closing now is because the coronavirus relief money supporting the shelter is running out. United Way, the organization that runs the shelter, tried to apply for more funds, but was unsuccessful. It hurts. It's really sad. Jamie Schledowitz is the manager. You know, I want to see everyone do well and be housed. And She shows me around the main lobby, which has three-story ceilings, a grand staircase, and chandelier. Before the pandemic, it was an abandoned nursing home building. I think it's really been a good fit. Especially during a time when people 
you know, have needed that isolation. Yeah, and they have their own kitchens, they have their own bathroom, they have their own bed. So really a sense of privacy. The extra space has paid off. The shelter hasn't had any outbreaks of COVID-19 since opening. Finding a similar safe space for residents is complicated, but housing navigators are here helping out. I have like a billion and three sticky notes for everything. Angelica Perez-Swiler spends most days in the shelter's small front office, scrolling through Facebook ads, Craigslist, and countless other websites. Rents in most Colorado cities dipped last year, but are now back at record highs. The going rate in Greeley is about $1,100 for a one-bedroom. It is crazy. Um, If finding the cheaper ones has been like a miracle. She says she's anxious about finding a solution for everyone. Um, I do think a lot of our residents will be housed. There are options, but I do think we're running low on time. It's high stress for what it is. Many residents see Bonnell's closure as a turning point in their lives. It could lead to a more stable housing situation, or it could lead back to a more crowded shelter. I want to be housed. I don't want to be on the streets. Frank Aflito is a former history professor and author who became disabled, then homeless several years ago. Since moving into Bonnell this past summer, he's been able to start writing a book on war crimes. He lights up while showing me the folding table he uses as his desk in the middle of his living room. Um, If my desk isn't messy, it isn't, um, I'm not working hard enough, I guess. One of the papers he picks up is a Section 8 housing voucher. Some of the staff at Bonnell have been guiding him through the application process, and he's confident he'll be able to get a new place with it. Like I said, I have a team that backs me. You know, I'm not in a warehouse. I'm not on a conveyor belt. These people really care about us. He already has housing plans for after Bonnell closes, as do a few other residents. Back in the shelter's main lobby, manager Jamie Schledowitz shows me a bulletin board. It's covered in colorful post-it notes with inspirational messages written on them. One simply says, it'll be okay. Shlodowitz says she designed it with residents after she delivered the news of the shelter's closure to help keep spirits up. Honestly, I see about half of the guests going somewhere, but we do have some that I do feel will end up back at the cold weather shelter. She hopes the community can learn some lessons from Bonnell's brief time as a shelter, especially as COVID cases and hospitalizations rise. The takeaway is that this works. Like, just people that have been on the streets for so long are no longer on the streets. They have a place to go at night. She's already planned a holiday party as a final send-off next month. Bonnell's last day of operation is on December 31st. I'm Matt Bloom, CPR News, Greeley. And Matt's reporting is part of a CPR News series on housing instability. You can find all the stories at CPR.org. We think of backcountry rescuers as the toughest of the tough Volunteers who save or recover people after avalanches, falls, crashes, and other calamities. But the mental toll of responding to disaster after disaster means these rescuers sometimes need help themselves. A new state law has created a rescuer support program, which will eventually be available to teams across Colorado. Summit County's busy search and rescue operation is part of the pilot program. Aaron Parmet is the medical officer there, and he joins us from Keystone. Hi, Aaron. Good morning. You and your fellow rescuers indeed must be in tip-top physical shape, but how are you at beefing up your mental health? Well, you know, um, 
we all are interested in preparation and readiness so that we can be good for ourselves and, and good for rescue. And we're really excited about this um, stress injury fundamentals pilot program because it's really going to help us uh, focus on preparing uh, for stressful events, increasing team resilience. And ultimately, that, that's just something that we need to do in order to create good outcomes for our rescuers so that, that we can keep these unpaid professional rescuers with um, their team out in the community, helping the community that they love. And is that something you think there has been a dearth of, that sort of support? You know, I've been doing this for 18 years, and I can tell you some of the tools that that we're seeing now in these foundations of stress injury courses, I mean, I wish they'd been around 18 years ago. Mm. Um, yeah, it's, it's just something that either wasn't focused on or, you know, wasn't optimized in the past. Give me an example of a tool you wish you'd had. Well, um, one of the largest tools that comes with this training is the idea of the stress continuum. Um, and that's the idea that we all exist at some level of stress um, from being good to reacting to stress, to being injured by stress, to be critically injured. And we think of it on the stress continuum as kind of like the battery on your phone, you know, it starts out green and it's full. And then as the stress um, increases, you know, it turns yellow and then orange and then red. And it's a great way to look at how things are affecting an individual or a team or even a patient um, in terms of experience, um, personal experience and, and effects and, um, and externally observable effects. And because you can classify these things across that stress continuum, you can figure out where you are, where someone else is, and then figure out what to do. Because ultimately, we all want to get back to that green state, that ready state. It's a happier place to be, a healthier place. And I suppose it's less binary, right? It's less, I'm stressed or I'm not stressed. There's room for the nuance of, you know, I'm inching towards something more serious. I might need help. And and naturally, uh, you, you mentioned, of course, that so many of these rescuers are volunteers, but is there going to be support for when they're, you know, towards the, the, the red? Um, are there people that they can talk to and not have to go into the poorhouse to do so? You know, you're so right. It, it is a continuum. So it's not an either or situation. Um, and you really hinted what needs to happen, which is trying to, to catch and, and help folks before they get into that critically injured state. Uh, but to have an array of resources that are available across that spectrum um, from including good practices, having good conversations with, with peers, mentors, and, and support, all the way up to the person who needs to see that uh, clinical professional to help them with what's going on in their life. And while this program doesn't specifically supply that clinical access mm -hmm. with the funding from the state bill. The, the state bill that funds this pilot program, which is just fantastic support for, for backcountry search and rescue in Colorado, does provide the training so that people have the awareness and some of the tools 
to help head that off. And then, you know, at the local level, at the team level, what we try and do is make sure that if people end up in that situation, that they are able to reach that support, um, that professional support, should they need it. And we get some of that support um, through uh, local organizations like Building Hope and through our um, our county sheriff's office, which mm. uh, is supporting and, and sponsoring our team. We operate under them. Please, as a please only answer this if you feel comfortable, because my intention is not to re-traumatize in any way. But what sorts of incidents have had the biggest effect on your mental health over the years? Oh, well, there's a question. Um, you know, I'll start off by saying that anyone can have a stress response to an incident. And that same person may not have the same response to a very similar incident that happens at a different time. Hmm. And the reason is um, our response to these incidents, it's, it's not some measure of how mentally tough you are. It depends on a whole lot of things. What's going on in your life? what's going on at home, at work, um, on the team. Are you well rested? Um, and what happened in that particular incident? Was there something about it that made it affect you more? Um, and that could be a very personal thing. Um, and so I guess if I wanted to answer that personally, I, I know the things that, that uh, get to me most. And it's good to know these things because if you can anticipate that, um, then you can calculate your involvement and what you need to do to help yourself in these types of situations. I know the things that, that definitely affect me the most are um, dealing with uh, the family uh, of a patient who didn't make it or dealing with calls that, that involve um, children. Those are definitely some of the more stressful situations or a call that involves someone I know. Hmm. So knowing that about yourself, but it's it's fascinating the insight you offer that two similar instances of search and rescue might have a different effect on you based on your headspace at the time and all sorts of factors. I appreciate understanding that. And so uh, there in Summit County, your search and rescue operation is part of this pilot program. So everyone's taking a course and then this will be widely available to teams across the state. Do I have that right? Yes, that, that's the hope and the goal. This course is offered by um, Responder Alliance, which just is a fantastic organization focused at helping first responders speaking their language for the particular type of first response that, that different groups do. Um, and so this course is aimed at search and rescue teams as opposed to say, um, a fire department or an avalanche worker. Hmm. And it's great that this pilot program is being offered. So the goal that I had for my team, when we got this super opportunity, um, was to get as many people as possible into it. And, and, uh, I got about a third of the team signed up, including our entire, um, crop of, of new search and rescue trainees. And the goal was to make this language common and the, and the concepts to be integrated into team culture. And I can tell you, I'm already getting awesome feedback. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's really amazing to hear some folks. Uh, 
I'll just read a quick comment from one of my teammates. After finishing the, the Foundations of Stress Injury course, this rescuer said, it's been eye-opening, comforting, and terrifying. It's given words and explanation of thoughts and feelings I've had surrounding mental health and the impacts of the work we do. It's been extremely comforting knowing we're not alone and there is an explanation and ways to manage all of it. And that's, that's what we want to offer our teammates. And I think it's going to be amazing when that's available to all rescuers on all the teams so that um, these, these unpaid professional rescuers who go out in the backcountry to help their communities have a tool to keep themselves happier and healthier and their teams more functional so that they can keep doing it year after year for 20, 30 years. I mean, as you have a long time uh, doing this work, Aaron, thank you so much for your time and for your work as well. I appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great day. Aaron Parmet, medical director for the Summit County Rescue Group. He joined us from Keystone. And we'll be right back with a bunch of cliches. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. A more reliable CPR stream on your phone. An easy way to tell CPR what you're thinking. Better browsing. These are just some of the new and improved features of the new Colorado Public Radio app. To get the latest from CPR News, CPR Classical, and Indy 1023, update to the new version on your phone or tablet. Get the new Colorado Public Radio app in the App Store and in Google Play. Search for Colorado Public Radio. Clichés are the comfort food of speech, and that's not a good thing, says Orrin Hargraves. He's a lexicographer who ranked clichés based on how often they're used. He hopes his book, It's Been Said Before, pushes writers and speakers to be more inventive. Let's revisit this 2015 interview, one of my favorites, as we mark two decades of Colorado Matters. Orrin, welcome to the program. Well, thanks, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here. I want to start with a question you pose early on in the book. Why pick on cliches? Well, everyone despises them, for one thing. Uh, Even though we all use them, you never hear anyone say a good thing about cliches. So I began with the idea that I could be a cliche killer. I could point out all these awful cliches that people use, and realizing how terrible they were, people would stop. But then (laughs) I found that I couldn't stop using them either, and neither could anyone else. So... uh, The book took a different direction of trying to get a grip on when cliches work and when they don't. That is to say, there can be positive uses of cliches. Yes, and I think we're almost inclined not to call an expression a cliche if it's successful. Because cliches, it it, it has only negative associations, right? No No one ever says, oh, I love all the cliches you use. Right. Um, when we like a cliche, we might call it, you know, a maxim or, or an idiom or, or, an idiom. or perhaps even a, even a proverb. Uh, yeah. When you say th- something is an idiom, that's based on how its meaning is derived. In other words, is the phrase more than the sum of its parts? Uh, classic examples are uh, kick the bucket or paint the town red. If you take apart the phrase paint the town red and think about the meaning of paint in the town and red, None of those have anything to do with the meaning of the phrase. Without, right? Yeah, with going to town. Uh, and having a good and time. And having a good example. time. A cliche, on the other hand, is a question about usage. Are you using a, an expression in a way that people consider trite, hackneyed, uncreative, uh, lacking originality, not quite hitting the meaning that they want? And what's an example of that for you? 
Uh, one that I think is invariably a cliche that you can't get away with using in the proper way is uh, at the end of the day. Uh, <laughs> okay. Because people use that as a kind of indication in speech to to move on to another point. But it's almost meaningless. That it is, is if, yeah. the, if it were dropped from the beginning of the phrase, the phrase would perhaps even have more power. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's often a really good sign of cliche. If you take it out of the sentence and then read the sentence and find that you have just as much meaning, then you've probably isolated a cliche. You hinted at this already, that you took a, a mathematical I- approach to this project, scoring cliches from one to five. Five, am I right, meaning that they're used most frequently and one least frequently. On the same page was a five. So it was at first glance and more or less. Uh, but why was it important to assign, you know, scores to this my idea was to capture the cliches that were the worst offenders, uh, the ones that would almost never succeed. In other words, cliches that were so overwhelmingly common that as soon as readers or speakers note them, they just turn off their attention because they realize nothing important is being said here. I can skip this part. And that is perhaps practical advice for writers and speakers. Definitely practical advice for writers. I think for, for people like you uh, who are in the profession of speaking extemporaneously have to come up with things on the spur of the moment. Uh, uh, that might be a cliche right there. Uh, this, yeah. <laughs> this is the thing. Once yeah. you start paying attention to cliches, it can become almost paralyzing. That's right. You it, don't want to utter another phrase because you're, you're thinking it's not at all an original thought. That's right. It will really hobble your spontaneity because <laughs> to go back to what you said originally, this idea that cliches are, are the comfort food of, of language. Which are actually your words, but okay. Yeah. And, and we, all, we all talk about very ordinary things all the time. And because of that, we don't really need extraordinary or creative language to talk about ordinary things. We need ordinary language. Clichés are ordinary language. But they become clichés and, and take on this negative association when your writing or your speech calls for something a little bit more creative and you're not, you're not there with it. And thereby pass up an opportunity to say something original. To be impactful. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I don't like that word impactful, but sure, go okay. ahead. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, we, we, all, we all have our, our peeves. <laughs> so I, I will try to refrain from expressing any more of mine. <laughs> okay. So you have this scoring system. And how did you draw from the world of cliches and begin to measure the frequency of their use? A lot of different ways. Uh, first of all, I looked at a few books that were called Dictionaries of Cliches. I also started paying very close attention to all the things that I read and all the things that I listened to. Once I had a, a phrase that I wanted to evaluate as a possible cliche, then I had a gigantic database uh, provided by my publisher, Oxford University Press. Uh, the database is called the Oxford English Corpus. It has 15 billion words in it. So it has probably at least one example of every word that you can even imagine. And for words that are extremely common, it has hundreds, thousands, even millions of examples. So that gave me the statistical basis on which to evaluate how frequent is this cliche in relation to other cliches of its kind. And that's how I developed the scoring system. And we talked about it being from one to five, but did you find the most used cliche? Well, I won't say that I found the most frequent cliche in English because it's possible that I completely overlooked it and we've already used it three times in this conversation. But I think today the most frequent one is probably going forward. Going forward. Uh, Okay. And I think what's interesting about that one is that it's relatively new because people used to say in the future 
or at a later date. But now everything is going forward. And you slice it away from the phrase, and the phrase becomes stronger. Going forward, we need to take out the trash. It's a much more, I'm sorry to (laughs) say this, impactful thing to say, we need to take out the trash. I agree. Yeah, Yeah. I I agree. There's Uh, an elegance to the simplicity, the cliche-less phrase. Yeah. So where does the word cliche come from? What does that mean? Uh, It comes from French, and actually it's very appropriate for its origins. Uh, This goes back to the days of typesetting, before text was was generated with computers. But in the days of metal typesetting, a cliche was a made-up phrase that occurred so often that typesetters kept all the metal in that phrase together as a single piece because they knew they they would have to use it again. So it's a French word. And speaking of other languages, is there any sense that there are more cliches in English than in other languages? Or is this a kind of universal human condition? It's certainly universal to languages. Uh, I haven't come across a one that that isn't riddled with cliches, uh, to use a cliche (laughs) to describe that. Um, It's likely, though, that English has more cliches because English has a larger vocabulary than many other languages. So I suppose that gives us more possible combinations. Do cliches change a lot over time? They they do. Interestingly, uh, the best dictionary of cliches that I looked at was published in the 1940s. by uh, uh, It was written by Eric Partridge, an Englishman who's a very well-known lexicographer. And what surprised me about that book was that many of the phrases he identified as cliches are not even used in English anymore. Oh, give me some uh, examples. There's one, all the world and his wife. The, ring a all bell? All the world and his wife? Yeah. Okay. yeah. Now, that doesn't <laughs> ring a bell for me. Uh, no. I don't know where it came from, but uh, for, for someone who happened to be as widely read as him, might might still know it. An interesting one that he has in his book is throw modesty to the winds, which, of course, doesn't sound familiar, but it probably reminds you of what we might consider another cliche today, throw caution to the winds. Uh, Hmm. So that may be a case where one cliche died, but before doing so, inspired another, which which has taken its place. To go back to all the world and his wife, if you're curious what that means, it says everybody from a mentioned village, town, city, district. So that would be like everybody and their dog. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the interesting thing is there that if a cliche dies, if it served a useful purpose, which that one clearly did, another cliche will have arisen to take its place. Did you come to like or even love a particular cliche? I tend to like cliches when they're relatively new because at that point, people don't generally consider them cliches yet. They're they're just clever idioms. Uh, And one that's relatively new, although it's it's probably on its way to becoming overused, is the elephant in the room. What I like about that is it's such a graphic image. Uh, mm. There's hardly any room you can imagine being in in which there is also an elephant. Like like so many idioms, though, it works so well that it becomes a victim of its own success and it becomes diluted uh, and therefore not as, to use your word, impactful as it <laughs> once was. <laughs> There's a section of the book called You Too Can Prevent the Spread of Clichés. What would be your best piece of advice? For writers, uh, it's actually a much easier job. What writers need to do is edit their work, and that gives any writer an opportunity to spot cliches and consider whether there's a better way of expressing the idea there. That is to say, if a phrase came too easily, perhaps reconsider it? 
That's almost always the case. The, okay. the, the first phrase that comes to your mind probably is a cliche because they, they have this infectious element. Uh, mm. The more you hear them, the more you use them. The more you use them, the more other people hear them. They, they become like a virus in language. So the thing that comes into your mind first is very likely to be a cl cliche. And the question you want to ask yourself then is, is this really the best way to express this idea? Or would I be able to make my idea clearer or more interesting to the reader if I used a more original phrase. It's much harder for speakers yeah. uh, because they give you thinking time. If you can spill out a cliche, that does you, you don't need to think about cl that cliche because you know how it works and you've used it many times. And so your mind can be going ahead to the next thing you're going to say or the next question you're going to ask. I see. Whereas if you're having to encode original creative speech, you don't have that time to think ahead. Uh, and you'll either have to talk more slowly or you'll have to lard your speech with a lot more uhs and hums and so forth uh, that, that people in general don't enjoy. Uh, I have far too many uhs in my speech, uh, clearly an indication of my stopping to think about what I'm going to say next. Well, maybe it's because you're such a careful speaker. I'd like to think that's true. but <laughs> That is lexicographer Oren Hargraves of CU Boulder speaking with me in 2015 about his book, It's Been Said Before. We're revisiting some of our favorite conversations as Colorado Matters marks two decades of interviews. Finally today, Telluride singer-songwriter Emily Scott Robinson mixes folk and country as she reflects on faith, loss, hope, and regret. She just released her third album, American Siren, which opens with dreamy three-part harmony on the track Old Gods. I'm down on my knees at a cross sea Wondering which way to go But all roads are dark through the valley And I'll learn to walk them alone But are you a trick of the memory That the old gods are playing on me Carry my prayers on the ocean Carry my prayers on the sea Robinson originally wrote this song for Telluride Theater's production of Macbeth, sung by three witches. I had a lot of fun. I wrote five original songs for the witches. We ended up adding witches. We had an extra witch who was a fiddle player. And this is obviously our own adaptation of the show, but it's a, it's a love song. And in many ways provides the foundation for why Macbeth and Lady Macbeth are willing to do what they are willing to do for each other. Right, people think that Macbeth is a play that's really only about murder and tragedy, but we wanted to explore the theme of love and like the love that did exist between the two of them and their passion and their connection. Robinson moved to Colorado from her native North Carolina to be a social worker, advocating for victims of domestic abuse and sexual assault. She also found a community of creatives that encouraged her songwriting, which she sees as another form of advocacy. Being able to kind of understand people's feelings and witness their experiences and tells their story. If, if There are many people who like can't tell the story or aren't ready to tell the story that is written into one of my songs. And so my song sort of does it for them and puts words to that. Um, they're both healing professions. 
For a track called Let Him Burn, Robinson sits at the piano to tell the story of a faithful wife and mother whose life is ultimately unfulfilled. Having grown up in the South, there's a really strong cultural pressure to build this kind of beautiful life that looks good on the surface. And in many ways, like social media has amplified that feeling of of having the perfect life on the outside. But there's like so much more in her that wants to come out. And there's these cycles of death and transformation and rebirth that mean that she'll have to shatter the safety of what she's built. The coffee's hot, the kids asleep. This is the only time I feel like I can breathe. But late last night, I locked the door and cried myself to sleep. Singer-songwriter Emily Scott Robinson. She'll perform her new album, American Siren, at the Soil Dove in Denver, Wednesday. Then, the Sheridan Opera House in her own town of Telluride, Saturday. Things you learn the hard way Some lessons you can't teach Until you're living through them The wisdom's out of reach Things you learn the hard way From Telluride to Tim Nath, that's Colorado Matters for today. Our team is... Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Nathan Heffel, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Avery Lill, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner, with special thanks to Nancy Lawholm. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Leave your wedding van too close to the kitchen.